and now I have to preach. (laughs) All right, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 51 through 56. Let's say you grew up in a house, somebody, and you would just kind of be trained to not like a certain group of people. Or maybe when you were growing up, your dad worked for some big company and that big company fired him unjustly. And so kind of just, you just never liked that company. Or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you had some dealings with a retailer and they didn't deal with their billing right and you felt they kind of scammed you and were mean to you and you kind of think, you know, I'm never, ever buying anything from them again. Well, when things like this happen, we we get prejudice. We, We have biases and they're kind of just in us. And a lot of times we don't dwell on them a lot of times until that company, that person, that group, that individual come into our lives. And all of a sudden, all those things that we didn't like that happened in the past kind of rise to the surface and kind of justify our negative response to them. And a lot of times um, when our prejudices, prejudices are based on things that have happened in the past. Maybe the people that are originally involved, they might even be dead and buried, yet we're still not going to, you know, like this certain group. And as we approach Luke 9, we approach the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, and Luke has included at the end of chapter 9 multiple failures that the disciples had uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry in the area of Galilee, and he includes them so we can learn from their mistakes. Jesus has given up his ministry base in Capernaum, and now he's headed south. Luke um, is now going to talk about his, his journeys. They're kind of really a multiple journeys, because he's actually, between now and through chapter 19, Jesus is actually going to go to Jerusalem several times. Uh, but Luke sees all of these journeys together as Jesus journeying towards Jerusalem to finally get to the place where he needs to be, which is on the cross, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So he is kind of looking at it as a whole, and so as we go through these next chapters, keep that in mind. Now, to get to Jerusalem, most Jews, if they were in the Galilee area, would do the typical head east, cross the Jordan, walk down the east side of the Jordan till you get to Jericho, cross over again at Jericho, rock up the hill to Jerusalem. They would do that because they hated the Samaritans, because they didn't want to set foot on Samaritan soil. But here in our text, Jesus is going to be going through Samaria, which is pretty unusual. Because Jews were taught to hate Samaritans and Samaritans were taught to hate Jews because of things that had happened in their history. It's kind of much like what we see happening today in the Middle East where, you know, the Palestinians hate the Israelis or, you know, the followers of Osama bin Laden hate Americans. And uh, the militant Muslims kind of have the idea that uh, here are your two options. Either we kill you or you convert to Islam. Well, that's kind of a hard person to deal with. Because now they kind of have this do or die attitude. And to them, it's fine if they die in their holy jihad trying to destroy us. Or if they die trying to convert us. If we convert, great. And if we don't, they would be glad to kill us or to die trying. 
And so there's kind of this mindset of just prejudice. There's no talking. You, you know, if you try and take the passive approach and just say, okay, well, you know, we're just going to, you know, kind of leave you alone. They, they won't be left alone. They either have us gone or have us converted. That's it. And so then if we kind of flex our muscles and, you know, strafe some cities and blow up some towns, then we're the big bad guy oppressing the weak little guy, which fuels their hatred more. And so it just goes on and on. And what is the solution? What is the solution? Well, it takes two people to be reconciled. And if one person just won't be reconciled, it just won't happen. Well, it was like this between the Jews and the Samaritans, except worse. The Jews regularly prayed that no Samaritan might ever get to heaven. They hoped they all went to hell and no one received the gift of eternal life. And that is some serious, they didn't even want them converted. They just wanted them dead and in hell. And both of them saw each other as heretics who had gone astray. Both saw the other person as worshiping in the wrong place. And so this is kind of the mindset you need to have as we get into our text, because we're going to be dealing with some Samaritans. So let's look at Luke chapter 9 and follow along as I read verses 51 through 56. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined, that is Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Some of your versions don't have that. We'll explain that later. And then they went on to another village. Now, from these few verses, I just want to point out two preparations we all need to make as Jesus' witnesses so that we can um, be good witnesses for him in the world and give him glory. And the first preparation is this. Be prepared to be rejected for Christ's sake. Be prepared. It's going to happen. Look at verse 51. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, um, notice that Luke includes, doesn't say the day of his ascension, but they were just approaching the days. That is, he is seeing all of this time period as kind of an accumulated whole, which is going to get Jesus to the finish line, which is ascended uh, up into heaven, Acts chapter 1, and seated at the right hand of the throne of the you know, of God up in heaven. So he's kind of just seeing everything pointing towards that spot. Look at the middle of verse 51, where we continue. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to take several trips, and now he wants to go to Jerusalem. It's kind of odd. He decides to go through Samaria, the quickest, shortest route. Look at verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. They did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, the reason the Samaritans would not receive Jesus is that he was traveling toward Jerusalem. You know, it's not like they knew Jesus. They knew the disciples, thought they were a bunch of scoundrels. And so we weren't going to, they didn't know anything about them. All they knew is they were Jewish and they were headed towards Jerusalem. And that's all they need to know because The fact that they were heading for Jerusalem told them, one, they disagree with us on our theology because they don't 
worship in Gerizim. And therefore they think we're wrong and they think we're heretics. So let's not help them out. And that's just how it was. And at that time, it was a huge deal. You know, you, you were to take care of travelers. It was either, you know, have somebody take care of you. You slept on the dirt. There just wasn't a lot of places to stay. You either stayed in someone's home or, or not. And so what's happening here is Jesus is traveling. He's, he, we've learned he's got a pretty big entourage with him. You know, I don't know how many, but he's not just the 12. The 12, their wives, other disciples, other women. We've seen this in Luke traveling around with him. So he's got this pretty good group. Jesus looks ahead and says, you know, we're almost at the city. Uh, you know, a couple of you, why don't you run ahead and, you know, just tell them we're coming Tell tell them how many there are, and we're just going to kind of need a place, just some shelter and maybe some food provisions to buy, and we're just going to stay there tonight before we head on. You know, not not a huge deal. And then they they won't receive him. And there's an important lesson to learn from this, and it's this: when you side with Jesus, when you're associated with Jesus and the truth of God's word, you will you will be rejected, and you just. Uh, you know, if you haven't experienced this, it's probably because you just came to Christ this morning. <laughs> it just happens. And you know it happens. And you should expect this to happen. Recently, just, you know, a bunch of carolers went out. Now, that is a mean group. Um, <laughs> to sing some songs to people. Hannah Mad- little gospel presentation, a CD with the gospel on it, and to say Merry Christmas. And you know what? Some people were just thrilled about it. They came out just, oh, carolers, you know, and here's some cookies, and here's $5. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, we aren't looking for an offering. If you show up and do something nice, what's the catch? Oh, you want money. You know, that's what they think. Anyway, some people were very thrilled and kind. Other people, though, kind of, okay, I'll listen to a song. Um, they tolerated it. And other people just said, we don't want a Christmas. You know, bah, humbug. And slam the door in the people's faces. You know, America is for the most part fine with Christians. You know, it's even fashionable in some circles to be Christians, call yourself a Christian, as long as you don't live the truth and speak the truth. As long as you're one of these innocuous Christians placebo Christians, Christians who don't make any difference, then you're great. Be a Christian. But you don't think about it. What if, you know, President Bush, for instance, got up in his next presidential address and said, I just want you to know we have some huge problems in America. Homosexuality is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Abortion is the killing of unborn children and God hates these things and we need to turn from them. What do you think they would do to him? They'd either kill him or they'd have him impeached in a week. They wouldn't put up for it for one second. 
And you know, you come to church and here we are, we're all in our little holy huddle here and, you know, a bunch of smiling faces and you're kind and God bless you brother and good morning sister and praise God. Let's worship songs together and, you know, talk about the word and what you've been studying, go to Sunday school class and we kind of have this safe environment and everything's fine. But you know, when you get out there, you start talking about the Bible says this, God says that is a sin. People are like, hey, you know, you're judgmental. You're divisive. You're unloving. You're, you're overstepping your bounds. You know, why don't you be one of those nice, silent as the grave Christians who just call themselves a Christian but don't live for Christ or speak up for the truth? And we have learned that Christians like that are really not Christians at all in Jesus' words because they are ashamed of him and his words. But if you do speak the truth, you know, you need to get ready to have your name kicked around in the street a little bit like a football and to have Jesus drugged through the mud because of you. Because that's what's going to happen. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. I just want to show you this. A lot of times when people receive even mild persecution or rejection or miss that job promotion or, you know, get passed up or looked over or ridiculed or made fun of. They kind of get shocked. Like, oh, they're against me and they're persecuting me and, you know, I'm a victim. Well, let's look at Matthew 10. Look, look, at, look at verse 14. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words... As you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Notice Jesus says in verse 14, there's going to be people who will not receive you. And people who will not heed your words. In other words, they will reject the message that you give them that will save their souls from eternal hell fire. You will go to do them good and they will hate you for it. Look down, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That is a pretty picture. Helpless sheep in the midst of ravenous wolves. In other words, I'm going to send you out and you're going to be preyed upon. People are going to look at you as as a place where they can vent their anger. A helpless group to persecute, to oppress, to be mean to. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Look at verse 17. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you and their synagogues and will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Notice Jesus says, it's going to happen. They're going to tear the hide off your backs because of me. They're going to bring you and try you in court and you're going to be found guilty. Why? Because you wanted to do them good and save them from hell. That's why. Because you wanted to love them. Because you wanted to give them a good message. They're going to hate you for it. Look at verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. (laughs) And you will be hated by all because of my name. But this is the one who has endured to the end will be saved. But whatever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Jesus says, you're just going to be in hot pursuit. 
Yeah, you know, you see this in the book of Acts. Paul goes to one place and they drive him out and beat him up. And then he crawls to the next city and they chase him there. And he goes to the next city. They're like chasing around the whole Mediterranean basin trying to kill him. Why? Because he was a false teacher? No. Because he was doing wickedness? No. Because he was trying to do them harm? No. Because he wanted to see them saved from hell. And so they persecuted him. Look at verse 25, if they have called the head of the, Be- the house Beelzebul, how much more were they maligned the members of his household? I mean, if they're going to call me Satan, well, guess what they're going to call you? I mean, what's worse than that? Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Notice that they're going to try and kill your body. And guess what? They're going to succeed. Jesus let them know in another place. Look at verse 34 and 36. Do not think I came to be peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And, and that the man's enemies will be the members of his household. The whole point here is this. Jesus says, I'm sending you out with the sword. The sword I'm sending you out with is that word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it pierces people's hearts. It judges their thoughts and intentions. It makes them feel uncomfortable. It makes them aware of their sin, that they deserve judgment, that they need a savior. And because they don't like feeling that, they don't want to think about being judged. They don't want to be pried away from their sin. They're going to hate you, the messenger, because you delivered the sword, which Pierce their conscience. They're going to hate you for it. All this adds up to rejection. And though it didn't happen every time, and though it doesn't happen in our life every time, yes, it happens regularly. If you are faithful to share your faith regularly, you're going to constantly receive some opposition. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Here Paul is defending himself. Against false accusations, uh, different people were coming saying, oh, Paul, he's not really all that special and he's a false teacher and he's not really an apostle. And, you know, they're giving him all this grief. Satan has kind of raised up an army of Paul doubters. So Paul is going to defend himself in this section. What's interesting, he doesn't say, you know, I'm the apostle Paul. I was, you know, personally discipled by Jesus 14 years in the wilderness. Or I was caught up in the heavenly places and, you know, I saw visions. And I just want you to know, I'm, you know, I'm a great preacher. And, you know, how many books of the New Testament have you written? And, you know, I mean, he could have, you know, really thrown down some serious uh, you know, bragging stuff. But he doesn't do that. Instead, notice what he says, starting in verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if it's insane. I more so and far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times received from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardships through many sleep and sights and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak and who is led into sin with my Without my intense concern. His whole point here is, you you know what my badge of apostleship is? I suffered more than you. I've suffered more persecution and rejection than you. And that was his badge. That was his proof. 
It was the proof because of this, because the person who lives for Jesus intensely receives persecution intensely. That was what he's saying. I have lived for Christ and here's verification. Paul speaking to Timothy said in 2 Timothy 3 verses 10 through 12. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to follow in my footsteps of being persecuted and suffering for Christ. Such as happened to me as Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just part of it. Peter, whose whole book is suffering for Christ, the whole theme of 1 Peter, that's it, says this in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. And I love this text because of this little phrase here that he says right at the bidding, Beloved! Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I like that. He didn't say, you know, don't be surprised if something happens. But don't be surprised if some fiery ordeal, some big bad woe comes down on you as if some strange thing were happening. It's, it's not a strange thing. It's a normal thing. He says, but to the degree that each share of the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. Make sure that no one of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. I like that. You are going to suffer And you need to rejoice. But you know what? Sometimes when we suffer, we don't rejoice. Instead, we complain, we worry, and we get bummed out because, you know, I mean, I was only trying to do them right, and I was only standing up for my faith, and the other guy got to share his beliefs, or, you know, whatever it is. We kind of get this, whoa, instead of this, like, oh, yeah. I suffered for Jesus. I did what was right. And I am blessed because of this. You know, sometimes people get in accidents, they get a severe head injury or whatever, and the paramedics show up and they're trying to help them and the person's fighting against the paramedics. And do they just kind of say, well, fine, pal, die. Let's go. Is that what they do? No, they contend. They grab that person. They restrain them by force. To help them. Because they are concerned about that person's life. And so they are willing, because they understand the person's condition, to put up with the rejection knowing that the person doesn't even know what they need or what's good for them. And so they're willing to put up with the guy's thrashing and his rejection of them to do him good. Well, that's how it is with unbelievers. They are injured with sin. They are disoriented, confused with satanic deceptions. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. And man, they don't even know what what they need. And even though they may be rejecting you, and even though they're saying, no, 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 you're exactly what they need. 
The truth you have is exactly what they need. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 129, for to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I love that verse because it says, not only is your faith, your, the faith that saves you granted to you by God, he gives you the ability to believe by his grace, but also to suffer for Jesus. That is granted to you. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And you can be sure that as our country and world continue to decline morally and men's hearts grow harder and harder towards God, they will also grow harder and harder towards those who love God. And that's us. No, it's going to leave those Christians alone who don't speak up for the truth, who don't live the truth, who are really not Christians at all. The rest are going to be persecuted. Mildly to severely, but they'll get it. So this week, as you spend time with the Lord, I would encourage you to just think about what we've just talked about and just talk about this with the Lord and say, Lord, when I stand up for you and I receive, you know, flack when I'm don't get the promotion, when I'm laughed at, when I'm scorned, ridiculed, fired, looked over, rejected by family, friend, whatever it is, when I do that. Help me to respond in a gracious way so that those people will go, wow, that person just responded kindly when I was mean to them. Instead of doing what the disciples did. Second point, be prepared to respond graciously. Look at verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this. Now, apparently, when Jesus was entering the town, he just sent the, some messengers ahead. They aren't far behind the text says James and saw saw it. That is, they saw that the Samaritans rejecting the request to be received for the night. And I remember James and John are two big bad fishermen. Jesus in Matthew three seventeen we learn nicknamed them sons of thunder. And so just picture it in your mind. Here, James and John are walking next to Jesus. They're kind of at the head of the the pack. They're coming in and they come into town just as they see this Samaritan saying, you Jews are heretics. You worship in the false place. You worship in a false system. And we don't want any of your kind around here. And you can tell that Jesus master of yours that we don't want him here either. So pack up and head out. And James and John are going, Oh, yeah? Look at the middle of verse 54. And they, James and John, said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? Well, that's an interesting evangelistic technique. (laughs) And where do you suppose they got this idea? Where do you suppose they got this idea? Well, they got it from 2 Kings Chapter 1, we aren't going to go there, but this is the story. King Ahaziah is the king, the wicked king. And remember, at that point in time, the nation of Israel had divided into two. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam rejected wise counsel. And so two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed 
the nation of Judah in the south and the ten tribes formed what is called the nation of Israel in the north. And they were led by Jeroboam who set up a false system of worship. And so Ahaziah is one of the wicked kings and he is located in Samaria. He's got his palace there. He's up on his, his roof and there's kind of an upper chamber with kind of a lattice structure where they kind of made these big, you know, like we have patio cover type things. He's walking around up there. I don't know what he's doing up there. Anyways, he falls through. He injures himself seriously. And so he tells messengers, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go right now and inquire of Belzebub, the god of Ekron, and find out whether I'm going to live or not. And so the messengers say, okay, they go to inquire of the idol and on their way, God, the angel of the Lord sends Elijah to intercept them. And then when they get there and they intercepted them, you know, basically Elijah says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of this idol? Just go back and tell your master he's going to die. Well, they go back and tell the king, you know, we never got to Baal, Zabub, and of Ekron, and, uh, but we did run into Elijah, and he said, you're going to die because you inquired of the wrong God. So then Ahaziah says, oh, yeah? Okay. I want you to get one of my captains and 50 men. I want you to go out there, and I want you to go bring him back here. So they go up there. They find Elijah, and they say, You're coming back with us, pal. And Elijah just says, hey, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it did. (laughs) Word got out. The king sent 50 more. They too were consumed. And then they very humbly came. Groveling in the dust. And that's when they got their request answered of him. So it seems like the disciples now having some, you know, miraculous powers, having just seen Elijah up on the mountain, James and John did, they're kind of thinking, you know, maybe we should like pull up some bigger artillery here and uh, let's see if God can, you know, bring some fire down and just incinerate them. But what you see here is a response that is kind of indicative of a lot of Christian responses when we are trying to help somebody, you know, I mean, it's one thing when it's really exasperating when you try to do somebody good and then they, they kind of, you know, diss you for it. They're, you're trying to help them. I'm pow, you're on your way to hell. And you're going to be there for day and night, forever and ever, being tormented in eternal flames. I'm trying to help you and now you're attacking me. And we can kind of say, Lord, can you bring fire down and incinerate them? For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs> you you, you want to just get rid of them. I think most of us have probably, I know we all have, watched some movie or book. Here's a common thematic plot. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. And one of the really good guys, the one that everybody trusts, is somehow secretly captured by the bad guy who is, you know, implanted with some mechanical device or given some chemical or, you know, some magic spell is brought over them so that person can be controlled by the evil people. And then what happens is, is in this critical part when they're all relying on the good guy to do his thing, what happens? He starts doing bad. He becomes traitor. You know, he's held captive to this evil force. But then in the very, very critical part, all of a sudden he's freed somehow. He comes to his senses and then he fights with the good guys and, you know, the movie ends and everything's great. 
I mean, if you think about it, there's tons of these things. It's just a super common literary device. The whole point is this. That is exactly what's happening with unbelievers. They are held captive by Satan to do his will. They are blinded. They are deceived. They are deluded. They don't even know that they're on their way to hell. And here you come thinking, you know, I need to help them. And then they attack you. Well, do we just say, well, then fine, burn. No, we contend to help them. We pray for them. We keep sharing the gospel with them. We keep living a Christ-like life in front of them. You see, the disciples here had forgotten the purpose of their life and ministry, which was to go out with Jesus and seek and save sinners, not burn them up. And you need to remember the purpose of your life in ministry. You know, you can do pretty much everything better in heaven than you can here that glorifies God, except witness to sinners. That is the task of the church in the world. To draw in, to harvest sinners. And a lot of times they, they don't want to be harvested. But I think I, I, if we were had time, we could go around testimonies here. You will find this. I found this to be true. There are some people where you think to yourself, this person is never coming to the Lord. I mean, this guy is, you know, he's the head of the mafia. You know, he's the, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, he's just, you know, axe murder or whatever. I mean, you just kind of feel like this person is never. They are so hardened, so cynical, so scoffing and against God. God's probably just given them over already. And then that person comes to the Lord. And they come to the Lord through this like interesting aggression. It's like death throes. Where, you know, certain people in the church, I love to hear people do this, where, you know, there's like five or six women and they're all kind of going to the same hairdresser who hates God to just slowly kind of infiltrate her life. You know, or there's like eight guys who know this unbelieving guy and they're just kind of talking to him about the Lord and he keeps rejecting and rejecting and they keep praying for him. They keep witnessing to him. And pretty soon the guy's getting more and more angry and he's more and more hostile. That's, a lot of times that's just like, you know, the, their, their carnal nature being thrown down by God and all of a sudden they just break and they come to repentance. People who do things like blaspheme God and are persecutors of the church of God and martyr Christians like the apostle Paul. And then God just takes that person and saves him. You know how he likes to save people like that? Because they magnify his glory. I mean, you know, if you're already a good person and God saves you, you can't really tell that much difference. But when you're really bad and God saves you, that gives him major glory. So never think that guy that gal who is hostile towards God, who says, I don't want to hear it, is beyond saving. Because in a moment, the Holy Spirit can just break them. Break them. And it's so neat to hear the testimonies of people who just say, you know, I was just fighting against God. I was fighting against God. And I didn't want it. And I didn't want it. And I didn't want it. And all of a sudden, they broke. God's Spirit just broke them. And God's not up there going, man, I wish I had enough power to do that. He can do it. And he always does it through the proclamation of the truth. So give it out. Okay, now, Jesus, when they asked to burn up the Samaritans alive, verse 55 says, but he turned and rebuked them. Obviously, 
Their response was ungodly. It wasn't love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, They had rejected all of Jesus' teaching and were just being vengeful. And they were being prejudiced because when you think about it, how many other times had Jesus been rejected before? He had been rejected before a lot of times, hadn't he? And even his own town. And did the disciples say, Lord, can we command fire to come down out of heaven, consume them? Why this town? Because they were Samaritans. That's why. They were prejudiced against them. Because they were Samaritans and the things that happened to their fathers and forefathers. Now, let's look at the end of verse 55 to a phrase that may or may not be in your Bible. In the end of verse 55 and verse 56, if you have the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version or the New James Version, there is this sentence in here. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. Now, if you have a New International Version or an English Standard Version, you look there and it's not there. All it says is, but he returned and he turned and rebuked them and then they went on to another village. So doesn't this just want to make you ask, what's going on here? I mean, who is playing fast and loose with the Bible? How come, you know, the person next to me has extra verbiage in there that I don't have? Or how come I do that he doesn't? And, you know, when you love God's word and you want to trust in God's word and all of a sudden there's a sentence missing, that's kind of disturbing. Kind of make you think, hmm, um, you know, how does this deal with the whole doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility when all of a sudden the sentence is gone? And so this is going to be a rabbit trail. We are now departing from the main lessons of the sermon to insert a important related issue to this textual problem. So let me just talk a little bit about this. First, we need to know about inspiration. What is inspiration? Inspiration is uh, a doctrine that, you know, uh, you may have may not have heard of. And it just is this. That when the authors of scripture decided to pen out a book, they wrote, they thought about it, wrote down what they wanted to say. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit superintended their writing so that what they wrote became, without error, the very thing the Holy Spirit wanted to say. And so, yes, it was, you know, Paul's writing, and it was the Word of God. So we can say, Paul said, or we can say, God said. And you see this in the Bible. Sometimes it says, and David said, and sometimes it says, the Holy Spirit said through David, and other times it says, the Holy Spirit said, and then quotes what David wrote. Which one is right? All of the above. So inspiration is that God is able to superintend the human authors so that they still write with what they're thinking and their experiences and all of those things down. All their writing style all comes through. But what comes through is without error. The result is the inspired word of God. The process is called inspiration. A key text on this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, where it says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. Because no, no one wrote these things as an act of human will, but men, it says, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak from God. So yes, it ended up being the human author. Yes, it being the divine author. And that 
product is the inspired word of God, the Bible. And God being perfect, God not being able to err, of course, produces a perfect word, a perfect product, the Bible. The problem is, is we say things like the scriptures are inerrant. Because we believe that all the truths in the Bible are without error. We believe the scriptures are infallible. That means they're all true and they can never be overturned. They're all God's truth. And he used to be saying, fine, if you just said, yeah, I believe in the infallibility of the word of God until a new group of kind of quasi liberals came along and said, well, you know, we believe in the infallibility of scripture too, but you just have to find out what parts of the Bible are actually belong there. You have to remove the other stuff and then whatever's left. Yeah, that's infallible. So then they got to decide what was left and what was taken out. You know, some the Jesus seminar, a bunch of self-proclaimed scholars sit around and flick beads in a hat and vote on what verses they like. You know, and then they're, the world, of course, gives them a lot of press because it undermines the Bible. So then theologians said, okay, this whole infallibility thing, this inerrancy thing isn't working because we have people kind of weaseling in there and kind of saying, yeah, there are errors. There's parts in the Bible that are wrong. There shouldn't be there, but we're going to, you know, get, decide what pieces should be there. And those parts will say are inerrant and infallible, which is kind of not what Bible believers believe. So then the theologians got together and they said this, let's develop a phrase that is so complex and weird that no one will ever remember it. They didn't really say that. Um, Just to prove the point, how many people here have used the phrase in the last month, verbal plenary inspiration? Raise your hand. See? Yeah, a couple people in the front. That's all. Uh, That's it. See? Bible thumpers. Um, That's it. Verbal plenary inspiration. What is that? Well, it's just this. Uh, Verbal means that the Bible is given an objective words. That is, you can look and see words in the text. It's objective. It's verbally given. Plenary means completely. And inspired means that God inspired it through the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Bible is given in objective words and is inspired by God in word and in part and in whole. And then that kind of gets all the people who want to weasel in there. And so Calvary Bible Church believes in verbal plenary inspiration. You want to throw that on somebody, make their eyes turn sideways, it works good. So the question remains then, what about the differences? I mean, isn't it true that over the centuries, scribes copying the Bible did make mistakes and errors yes and isn't it true we don't have any of the original manuscripts yes and so how can we say the bible is accurate and reliable and inerrant and infallible if in fact you know there are so many translations and so many transliterations and there's so many times it's been copied and how can we ever know that the bible's true well let me tell you Because there is a field of study which actually seeks to determine the original text of the Bible. There's two related fields. It's called textual criticism and they're called higher critics. And those are the bad guys. They're just liberals who want to attack the Bible, undermine the authority of the Bible and reject it. So you don't need to listen to them. Then there are lower critics who are legitimate Um, theologians who specialize in linguistics who seek to try and find what the original text of the Bible is. Now, let's just say, 
you take all the manuscripts, and I'm telling you, there is a lot of them. You not only have complete manuscripts, partial manuscripts, then you have fragments of text in the tens of thousands. So we're talking a lot of information here. And then you also have ancient books that quote portions of the Bible, and they can say, oh, this was written in you know 350 AD. He's quoting this portion of this, and look at, they match perfectly. You can almost assemble, you could, somebody said, I know he's done this, but somebody said you could pretty much assemble the entire Bible by quotes, ancient quotes that were quoted from it. If you just got all those things, you could assemble the whole Bible just from people quoting it because it was such a special book. So you have all of these things. And when you put all of those manuscripts, those ancient manuscripts and fragments and quotations together, you find out that there are 2% difference. And those differences are called variants, textual variants. That's because they vary. Now, most of these are very easy to fix. You know, there's the guy who's writing and he misspells a word. And you're thinking, did God misspell that word or not? He go, well, let's just fix the spelling, you know. Um, you know, maybe a, a scribe had dyslexia like me and transposed letters. And, you know, you just see it. I mean, it's just okay. Um, and then there are times when scribes are, you know, they're tired, they're concentrating, and all of a sudden they repeat the same line twice. And, yeah, I mean, have you ever done that? You're typing or something, you type the word, and then you type it again, and then it flags one of them. Yeah, same thing, except it didn't flag it because they didn't have a word processor. And the whole point is, is they had a repeat, and you could just see, you know, it says the same thing. You're thinking, did I just have a, like, did I read the same line twice? And you look, and they put the same thing down there, and they just remove a sentence. Now, when you fix all the real easy ones, then you get down to one half of 1% of the totality of the Bible that has variance that there's some question about. Should this say fleas or flies? See, then you have to decide which one is the true text. So now that you're down to this one half of 1%, you're thinking, okay, let's just say... You have one text that says Jesus and another text that says Jesus Christ. Now, which one is true? Well, there were some guys, some linguistic experts named Westcott and Hort, who decided to try and figure out uh, some rules to solve this problem. They have a more objective way of trying to determine. And they had studied a lot of ancient manuscripts. They had compared them, old ones, young ones, and they'd kind of compared them. And they thought, okay... Let's make up some rules, and whenever we have a variant, we'll run them through the grid of, of rules, and then we'll kind of rate them, and we'll put the one with the best rating in the text. And so they, I'm just going to give you three of their rules. For instance, they said, the oldest text is to be preferred. Just preferred. Why is that? Because the closer the text is towards the original document, the less times it's been copied, and the more... Chances it has of not being corrupted. So the older text is to be preferred. Secondly, they said the shorter text was to be preferred. Now, why would they say that? Well, because this is what they discovered. You know, let's say this guy shows up. He's, he's copying a Bible in 300 AD. He, he pens out, you know, the book of Ephesians. And he does that. And then later on, some guy takes that and he copies it. And he uses it and he's studying from it. And... He's studying it and he's, he's just kind of meditating on Jesus being the Messiah. And there's a text that talks about Jesus, but it just says Jesus. And so he writes in the margin, just like you do in yours, Christ. And 
he dies and somebody else gets his old Bible and there they needs to get copied because it's kind of getting old. And so he's copying it and he gets to that verse and it says Jesus, but in the margin there's brackets and it says Christ. And he's thinking, hmm, I wonder if the first guy who copied this forgot to put that in the text. And so he put it in the margin. And so I need to put that in the text. And he's thinking, you know, I... I know, you know, obviously Jesus is the Christ, and so it's true. I mean, it wouldn't be introducing error, any theological error to the text, and I don't want to leave anything out, so I'm going to include it. So then in, you know, 500 AD, the guy includes it in the text. Well, then the, the guys who studied the manuscripts then noticed that in 300 AD, it's not there. In 400 AD, it's in the margin. And in 500 AD, it's in the text. And every version past that, it's in the text. And so they said, we have discovered that scribes never take words out. They only add them. Because they love the text of scripture. And if they aren't sure, they include it. And so they go back and say, obviously, look at the progression here. And so they say, the shorter text is to be preferred. One more rule. Another one, they said, the harder reading is to be preferred. And they found this too, that some scribe, there's some like hard Greek phrase or Hebrew phrase. And, and the, the scribe like makes a notation clarifying in the margin. All of a sudden, somebody copies it later. And all of a sudden, that clarification's in the passage. But they never found a scribe ever trying to make a text more difficult to understand. And so these are the kind of rules they set up. They're really quite brilliant that, you know, the, the older text, the shorter text, the harder text, things like these. And then what they did is they take these little one half of 1% variants. They put all the variants together. They rate them all according to these rules. And then they put the best one with the best rating in the text. And they include all the other ratings. If you get Biblica, Hebraic, Stuttgardensia out, I know you probably have one at home. Or the Nesselallon 27th edition of the New Testament Greek. And you look down in the margin, you'll see all the readings, all the variants, and they'll all be listed there one after another. And so that, you know, probably, they're probably shooting, you know, at least 75% accuracy, which means there might be some just little minor words where they don't know whether it's a plural or a single singular or whether it's an imperfect or, you know, indicative or, you know, imperative or whatever. I mean, we're talking minor things. But even if all of the variants were wrong, that is... All of the variants that they thought should be in the text were wrong. Even if all of them were wrong, it would change no major doctrine or meaning of the Bible. None. That is why we can say we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. And your Bible is completely trustworthy. And so now you know why there's differences. Because the phrase, if you have the New American Standard Bible or the New King James, there'll probably be brackets around it. There'll probably be a footnote there. And if you look, it says these words are not contained in any of the early manuscripts. None. And that is why the New International Version and the English Standard Version said, we aren't even going to put them in there. So there you go. Now you know why there's a difference. Okay, coming in for a landing. What have we looked at? We've looked at that if you're a Christian, you should be prepared to be rejected because it's going to happen. It's promised. And probably the greater degree that you live for Christ and speak up for Christ and share your faith, 
and honor God with your life, the more rejection and persecution you can expect to receive. But don't be bummed about it. Don't think, you know, um, this is a bummer and I'm a victim. Rejoice and be glad because they persecuted Christ before you. You will be blessed because of this. God promises it. And so don't freak out. Remember, these people are deluded. They're confused. They're lost. And they need somebody to contend for their eternal soul. And that's you. Secondly, don't be partial. Don't be prejudiced. Don't sin against people in trying to help them. Don't ask God to burn them up. Because they said, I hate Christianity, I don't believe in God, and I don't want to hear what you have to say. Just say, you mean you don't want to hear about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins? No! They was buried, and then he rose again on the third day, and if you repent and believe, you will be saved. You don't want to hear that? No! I'm going to pray for you, that you'll come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop it! You mean, you mean to tell me you actually want me to stop? Not, you know, I mean, let them have it, man. Just do it with a smile on your face. Man, I'm going to pray for you, brother. As a matter of fact, my whole church is going to pray for you. I'm putting you, for every week, from now on to the end of the year, my whole church is going to pray for you. I'm going to remind you. We're not giving up on you. And finally, don't anyone try to discourage you about the accuracy, veracity, authority, inspiration, infallibility of the Bible. It is by far the most reliable ancient document that we have, period, by quantum leaps and bounds. You can completely trust it. And as Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but our, the word of our Lord abides forever. God will never allow his word to go into a state of disrepair because it is his word and he's going to protect it. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again from the grave for our justification that through faith in him, we could have the free gift of eternal life. Father, I just pray that as we go out in the world, as we may receive persecution and rejection to whatever degree, that we would not take that as men hating us because of who we are, but Father, a reproach falling upon your Son, that we would consider ourselves blessed because we are suffering for Christ's sake, and that, Father, we would remember that those men and women who hate you and hate the gospel are just like we are before coming to know you. We're just fellow sinners trying to help other sinners who don't even know enough to flee from your wrath that's coming. So, Father, help us to be prepared. And, Father, when it comes, may we respond in a gracious, God-honoring, loving way that they may see the difference and our response might be used by you to break them and bring them to true saving faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.